the passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at this morning. We may hear the Word of God read uninterrupted, and we're going to get a chance to respond to what we've heard in song, and then we'll open up the Word and study it together. Our passage this morning is taken from the New Testament book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 2 through 11. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. For those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have even more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, become like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is God's word for us, his people. Stephen, if you'd go ahead and skip to the title slide, that would be awesome. Thank you. September is always kind of a fun and uh, exciting time in the life of the church. It's uh, a time to kind of transition, to start a new year. I mean, the calendar year obviously begins at a different time, but in so many ways, the ending of summer and the beginning of a fall, the beginning of a new school year, the beginning of a new kind of ministry year, if I could put it that way, uh, this is an exciting time. We often take a couple of weeks as a church in September and spend that time looking at the Bible and letting it remind us of who we are uh, in Christ and uh, who he has called us to be, why we're here before we start uh, a longer study in Scripture. We're going to do the same this year, although this year is even kind of a more cool September because as we mentioned earlier in our service, uh, we're coming up on our church's 30th anniversary, and that's a significant milestone. So maybe even more so than normal, this is a great opportunity for us who are part of this congregation to look back and and celebrate God's faithfulness in uh, this church and informing it and sustaining it, and we will do that, and especially to look ahead at who God has called us, who God has brought here right now to be this church and what he wants to do in and through us in our community. 
So leading up to that celebration, again, that's going to be two weeks from now, Sunday evening, September 25th. I hope you all come back, bring your families. It's going to be a great time. Now leading up to that Sunday, uh, that, that Sunday for three Sunday mornings, this morning and the next two Sunday mornings, we're going to look at three sermons from the New Testament book of Philippians. And in these three Sundays, our theme is how God has called us to be an anchored people in the midst of a drifting culture. Uh, Our intention in saying that as a church, kind of our attitude and our heart, is not so much to look out at people around us who are not part of our church and be critical or, or, or kind of judgmental toward them. That's not really the heart of it at all. It's simply to say that when we open up the Bible, we see that the gospel radically changes a person's life. It anchors us in some very specific and significant ways. And in order to represent Christ, one of the best ways we do that is to be gospel anchored people in the the midst of a generation where people are anchoring their lives in many other things. We're going to look at three of the unique ways that the gospel anchors our lives over these next three Sundays. We're going to see how the gospel anchors our lives in our identity. Who am I and what worth do I have? The gospel shapes that if you're a Christian. Secondly, next Sunday we will look at how the gospel anchors our ultimate goals. Where am I headed? What's the end result and the end game of my life? And thirdly and finally, we will see how the gospel anchors our mission. What am I here for and what am I doing with my life? We begin this morning with seeing how the gospel anchors our personal identity. And as we read a moment ago, we're going to see that in this paragraph the Apostle Paul wrote in the third chapter of the New Testament book of Philippians. He starts out these first couple of verses. I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to turn them there uh, or swipe them there, whether your Bible's paper or electronic as the case may be, because we're going to walk through this passage and and hit a lot of the, the main points that sort of characterize the flow of thought, and we'll see that it's all about identity. It's all about identity. There's many great truths taught in this passage, but one of the core themes that runs through it is our personal identity. Perhaps you saw that as we read through it. The first couple of verses right away, this passage begins by laying out the fact that there are really two places we can, as people, anchor our identity. We might call one of them in human effort, or as we often say here at Harvest, self-reliance. I build my identity, my sense of who I am and what I'm worth, on things that I can control, and there's a whole host of those things. And then on the other hand, this passage is going to help us see that we can ground our identity in the gospel of Jesus. But that's a choice that each one of us have to make. He says right away at the beginning, uh, look out for those uh, evildoers. He even calls them dogs, those who mutilate the flesh. And we might be reading this as 21st century American Christians going, what the world is he talking about? Just a brief word of historical background. This was a letter written to the New Testament church in the ancient city of Philippi during the first century. And in the context of those earlier days of the church, only a few decades old at that point, um, Most of those early Christians were Jewish. They were Jewish ethnically and they were Jewish religiously and they had embraced Jesus Christ as the Hebrew Messiah. And so they were Jewish Christians. Now, as what that meant was very significant. In order to be one of God's people in Old Testament times, you had to be an Israelite. You had to be a Jew. So to be one of God's people was to be Jewish, to be ethnically connected to Abraham through his sons Isaac and Jacob. 
That was a significant and important aspect of being part of the people of God. So you had to be ethnically Jewish, and then you had to obey the law of God. Someone who was ethnically Jewish and who dedicated themselves to following the law of God, they were at the top of the heap when it came to being God's people. Now, as the gospel spread around the Mediterranean world, and more and more people joined the church who did not have a Jewish background, uh, this suddenly created a real tension. It was one of the first big problems in the early church. And the question was, do these non-Jewish people, their term for that was Gentile, they're non-Jewish, they have other ethnic backgrounds and religious backgrounds, do these non-Jewish people who have embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior have to convert and become Jewish? Do they have to go through the process of male circumcision and start to obey all the Old Testament laws of Moses in addition to believing in Jesus? And many of the early Jewish Christians thought, yes, that's exactly what God has commanded, so that's what has to happen. And many people thought, no, this was a huge problem, and it created a lot of division in the church. It created such a big division that the very first council within the church in all of church history was called together. That story is captured in Acts chapter 15 in the Bible, and they discussed and debated this very question. They came definitively to the conclusion that the answer was no. No, a non-Jewish Christian who embraces Jesus as his Lord and Savior, that's enough. He doesn't have to convert and become Jewish or be circumcised or do all these other things. And the Apostle Paul, who is writing our passage this morning, was a vigorous defender of that position. And so here he is telling the churches, watch out for people who are telling you, as a non-ethnically Jewish person, that you have to do all of this other stuff in order to be okay with God. You can ground your identity in your ethnic background or your religious performance, but he says that's wrong. That's not the gospel. And so he contrasts it. We need to ground our identity in the gospel. That's verse 3. The real circumcision, which by now you probably realize is kind of first century technical religious language. In other words, what he's saying is the real people of God, the people who are really good with God, are those who ground their identity in the gospel not in their ethnic or religious background. He says, we're the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. We get excited about what Jesus has done, not who we are and what we have accomplished. That's the difference. And so we see this kind of laid out. This is the whole point of the the sermon, the whole point of the paragraph. And the rest of everything we're going to see this morning just kind of unpacks it. Here's the point. We have two choices when it comes to our identity. I can ground it in self-reliance, or I can ground it in the gospel. Now, for the rest of this paragraph, the Bible unpacks for us some of what that means. It's interesting that in verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, by the way, now that I just said that, don't ground your identity in what you can do grounded in the gospel. He says, think about who's talking. I, of all people, have more in my account, so to speak. I got more good stuff in terms of my self-reliance than almost anybody. So it's not like I'm saying you shouldn't ground your identity and your performance just because my performance has been bad. And then you'd say, oh, of course you don't want to say that because you don't measure up. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. In verse 4, he says, I measure up. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. In fact, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's not only saying I was a successful religious person before I encountered the gospel of Jesus. He's saying I was actually far more successful at being a good religious person than almost anybody could be. And I'm telling you that that's not the way. The picture of what I think he's trying to get across here is sort of like in school. If you remember school, some of us remember being in high school or whatever, 
You know, when I was in high school, I remember, you know, you get the grade scale, there's like a 4.0. That was kind of like, like the cream of the crop academically. Like if you could hit 4.0, you were really something. Now, of course, most students didn't quite get there. Some got really close and some didn't get as close. But in general, for the vast majority of students, it's like, yeah, I mean, that's the ceiling. I mean, however close you manage to get, 4.0 is like it. Now, there's always, you know, a few brainiacs who hit the 4.0 or maybe even took some kind of college-level courses and got a weighted GPA that might be really a little bit higher. Somebody says, I got a 4.1. Ooh. That's like, wow. I mentioned earlier, my daughter graduated from high school. She went to a big school, a lot of graduating, uh, large graduating class, so a lot of students were very successful. The valedictorian of her graduating class, this young lady who did better over her four-year academic career than anybody else in the school, any guesses as to what her GPA was? 4.1, 4.2, wasn't even 4.3. I've got one 4.5. Her GPA, 4.6. Where do those people come from? <laughs> I mean, that's insane. This girl clearly never met a class she didn't get an A in. She took every advanced college-level class she could, got A's, and all of them, the cumulative weighted GPA, 4.6. I didn't even know it was a real number when it came to grades, you know? There's always that one student who's just like, they're on another level, you know? They even make the high performers look pretty pedestrian. <laughs> They're just functioning on a whole different plane. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that when it comes to religion, I was that guy. I was that guy. You guys think you were pretty good because you had a 3.9, you were almost a 4.0? I had a 4.6. I had a 4.6. Check out my credentials. And for the next couple of verses, he lists several of his qualifications to consider himself somebody who is successful religiously. And as we quickly read through this list, what I want you to see is that these qualifications naturally fall into two categories, and they are both common ways that people anchor their identity in human effort. The first one is we anchor our identity in our group or ethnic background, and the second one is we anchor our identity in our performance and what we can achieve. Let's look at each of those in turn. First is the idea of, of ethnic or in general group background, verse 5. He said at the end of verse 4, if anyone uh, thinks they have reason for confidence in the flesh, you think you're 4.0. I have even more. I'm the 4.6 guy. He says, look at some of my credentials. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Four really brief phrases that shed light on his qualifications. Now, because these are somewhat first century religious and cultural bound terms that may be a little less familiar to us, we can summarize it this way. When he says, I'm of the people of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin, what he is saying is my genealogical credentials were airtight. They were absolutely airtight. Remember, in the Old Testament era mindset, to be part of the people of God meant that you were descended from Jacob. And the people of Israel were divided into 12 tribes, they called them. They were all considered ethnic Israelites who traced their genealogies back to Jacob's 12 sons. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is, I can trace my family lineage all the way back to Jacob's 12th son, Benjamin. I am lock, stock, and barrel an Israelite. Nobody 
has credentials that demonstrate that he is part of God's people stronger than my credentials. He also says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, obviously, that wasn't his choice. That was his parents' choice. But his point is simply this. The Old Testament law of Moses commanded that the sign of the covenant, the relationship that God had with his people, is that male Jewish children would be circumcised eight days after their birth. He's saying, I came from people who were not only genealogically qualified, airtight credentials, but they were following the laws of God to the letter. The exact right action at the exact right time, exactly the way God had specified it. We do what God wants. We're not only genealogically qualified, we're the kind of people who live as good Jewish people are supposed to live. And finally, he notes that he was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is kind of a curious phrase, and it may be drawing attention to the fact that he was raised in a Hebrew-speaking home. Many Jewish people back then spoke Aramaic, or dialect of Hebrew, but in, in a, a world that was very diverse, where Greek was the most common language and Latin was also prominent because the Roman Empire was in charge and there were many, many other languages, not necessarily every ethnically Jewish person could speak Hebrew fluently. The Apostle Paul says, I grew up speaking the mother tongue in my home. And not every Jewish person can necessarily say that. You see what he's saying? There was nobody more Jewish than me. And so when your ethnic background is the key to your identity, I had a 4.6. My credentials were absolutely airtight. Nobody could question or claim more solidly Jewish ethnicity than the Apostle Paul could. And of course, while the details in a modern 21st century context are different, group identity is still a pretty big issue in our world. Is it not? That's not all ethnic identity. Although ethnic identity is a pretty big issue in our world right now, too. I have to be almost blind not to recognize that ethnic tension is on the rise. It's not just there. It actually seems to be getting worse in our country as time goes on. But it's not that having an ethnic background is a bad thing. That's not what the Bible's talking about. We all have an ethnic identity, and those are good things that should be celebrated. The question is, is that the basis of my identity? Put it this way. If you've ever felt superior to somebody else because of the color of their skin or their ethnic background, if you've ever even had that twinge of, oh, they do that, they talk that way, they eat that way, they live that way, and I'm different. Or you know what? It works in reverse, too. If you've ever felt inferior to somebody because of ethnicity or skin color, then you may know what it's like to at least partially have your identity rooted in your background. That's my group. Those are my people. That's who I am. So that happens today, too. But as we mentioned, it's not, just, it's not just ethnic identities. There are all sorts of tribes, if you'll allow the use of the term. We have political tribes. That's obvious in an election year, is it not? Once again, not that political opinions are bad. I actually hope you have political opinions. And as Americans, I hope you participate in the political process, at the very least, by voting. The issue here is not, do you identify with a political outlook or philosophy or even party? The issue is, is that your identity? So once again, if I have ever 
demeaned or, or disdained or looked down on another person because of their political ideology. You know, loathed those nasty Democrats, if you're a Republican. Or despised those brainless Republicans, if you're a Democrat. Or even one of those people that's above it all. I'm an independent. I just hate the partisans of both parties. They're the problem. But see, me and my tribe, we're all above that. When we start looking down on others because of political philosophy, we may start to experience a little bit of what it has, means to have our identity at least partially grounded in a political tribe. And the list of different tribes goes on, but, but I'd be remiss not to mention one more. There are also religious tribes, aren't there? In fact, that's the immediate context of this passage, which may be a weird thing to hear a pastor say on Sunday morning. What, you don't want people to identify as Christians as opposed to some other religion? <laughs> well, no, of course not. Of course that's not the case. Um, I am a Christian, just speaking of myself, and I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Mormon, and I'm not an atheist, and I'm not a lot of other things, and I am this and I'm not that for a lot of reasons that I happen to think are very good reasons. To know what we believe and to know why is absolutely essential. But the question is, is my identity grounded in the tribe of people who agree with me? If you've ever felt disdain for another person or smug superiority over them because of their beliefs, you find out that they're a Muslim and they're instantly suspect. I find out that they're an atheist and I'm immediately looking down on them. Then you might have your identity partly rooted in your religious tribe, like the Apostle Paul once did. You see, we might describe having my identity grounded in my group. Basically, you could summarize it this way. It's the belief that I am who I'm from whoever that may be, that ethnic group, that political tribe, that religion, that whatever, whatever groups I tend to associate and affiliate with, and we all do, and that's fine, that's actually good, but when that becomes the basis of my identity, the Bible's saying we have a problem as Christians. I am who I'm from. That's a one way to base our identity on human self-efforts. Now, it's not the only one. The Apostle Paul moves on. We can ground our identity in our group or ethnic background, but we can also ground it, secondly, in our performance. Performance is a common way that we ground our identity as people. He goes on with his list after saying that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to the righteousness under the law, I was blameless. All three of those things are pointing toward his credentials, his, his performance. When we ground our, our identity and our performance, we might summarize that by simply saying this. It's the belief that I am what I've done. Or I am what I can do, what I'm capable of. Because I have done or constantly do these things, I am somebody and I have worth. If I can't do those things anymore, I no longer have worth. That's what he meant when he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Of course, back in the first century and even before that, good Jewish men and women were supposed to learn the law of God, what we often refer to as the Old Testament, particularly the first five books of the Old Testament, to learn the laws of God and to do their best to follow those laws in the midst of them going about their daily lives. 
as, you know, shepherds or farmers or, or, or mothers or fathers or whatever. You're supposed to, as you're living your life, follow the laws of God to the best of your ability. That's what a good Jew would do. But there was a select few for whom knowing and following the law was their life. These were the religious leaders, and one of the largest groups of those leaders they called the Pharisees. They were Jewish religious leaders who had devoted their lives, not to the menial tasks of farming or shepherding, but to the task of the law of God. They would often memorize large portions of, or in some cases, the entire Old Testament in its original Hebrew language. That takes a little discipline. They would teach it, they would live it, their whole life was devoted to the law of God. If there were people out there who were saying, hey, I'm pretty happy with my 3.5, these guys were all 4.0 students. Like they were going above and beyond. Their whole life was devoted to the law. The Apostle Paul says, that's, that's what I'm doing. And you think some of those guys had a 4.0? I had a 4.6. You're just good at following the law. My life was devoted to the law. I can outdo you. Secondly, he says, interestingly, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. Some of you know the personal history of the Apostle Paul, uh, as recorded in the book of Acts, before he met Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. Well, to the Jews, the law of God, the Word of God was holy, it was precious, it was sacred. These are the words of God Almighty. The Jewish reverence for the word of God was incredibly high. But now, along came the early Christians, claiming that Jesus followed the law for us. And so, therefore, we no longer have to follow the law in order to be okay with God. Sacrilege! Somebody who claims to speak from God and tells you you don't have to do what God said? That was the most offensive thing to a dedicated Jewish mind, you can say. And by the way, the gospel of Jesus even today is deeply offensive to many religious minds still for this very reason. And so, the Apostle Paul's zeal for the law of God it didn't just stop at being offended by people who wouldn't follow God's law. His, his zeal, his energy, his commitment to the things of God was so strong that it wasn't even enough for him to just devote his entire life to the law of God. Most people would say, all right, I get it, you're committed. That's the 4.0. He said, no, I had a 4.6. You know what I did? It wasn't enough for me to just devote my own life to the law of God. I actively went after and attacked sometimes physically, the people who I saw undermining the sacredness of God's Word. He literally made it his personal mission to tear down those who were preaching the gospel of Jesus because he thought it was an affront to the holiness of God's Word and he felt it would lead people away from God. They were the enemy and therefore they were worthy of persecution, imprisonment, beatings, and in some cases, even death. He was not above killing people who would so defame the Word of God. Such was his zeal. Friends, quite frankly, if the pre-Jesus Apostle Paul, before Jesus changed his life, if that guy was alive in the world today, 
we would call him a religious extremist at least, and we would probably call him a terrorist. He would kill people for their religious beliefs and for defaming the laws of God in the same way that Muslim terrorists last November blew up a magazine office in Paris for defaming what they hold to be sacred, the image of their prophet, Muhammad. For some Muslims, that makes somebody worthy of death. That was the Apostle Paul. You think you're a devoted Jew? Your 4.0 means nothing to me. I had a 4.6. Finally, he says, as to the righteousness under the law, I was blameless. There are commonly said to be 613 commands that the rabbis uh, would teach from the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul followed every one of those that was applicable to him more thoroughly and more consistently than anyone else could have. His performance was airtight. Nobody could look at him and say, yeah, you're pretty good, but you consistently failed to keep these laws. He was the 4.6 student. He's saying when it comes to finding your religious identity in your performance, nobody did better than me. His identity was wrapped up in that. He was an achiever. And of course, performance identity lives on very strongly today, particularly in our culture. Details are pretty different for our modern culture, but the issues are the same. We have grades to earn. We've got jobs to do. Uh, we have families to care for. We have important responsibilities, and those are good responsibilities. And the opportunities and the abilities we have to fulfill these roles are also good things. They're blessings from God. But think about this. What if you could no longer work or go to school or care for your family or whatever it is you typically do? How would that affect you? This past week, I was reading an article from uh, another pastor who 10 years ago um, contracted some kind of a very rare and to me bizarre sounding um, nerve disease that affects all of the nerves in both of his arms such that he literally no longer has any strength in his arms. He simply has no strength. If you'd look at him, you wouldn't see anything wrong with him. But he says, I, I have no strength. I can't pick a wet towel up off the bathroom floor anymore. He says he can no longer hold a metal fork with a bite of food on it. When he travels with his wife, she's the one who has to lug the suitcases now into the car. She has to help him get in the car and buckle his seatbelt because he lacks the strength to pull the seatbelt across his own lap. And he no longer has the ability to pick up and hold his children. How would you feel? I know one of the things I would feel. I would be battling very deep doubts about my worth as a person if I could no longer do such basic things. If I can't do these things, then what good am I? And friends, if you've ever questioned your worth or your value based on what you can or cannot do or what you can or cannot be for somebody else, you've probably gotten a taste of how easy it is for us to base our identity and our performance And while the Apostle Paul points out these two areas where we can ground our identity in our, our group background or our performance, there are many others as well. 
Modern people, as modern people, we tend to anchor our identities in lots of places. We anchor our identity in our image. We might summarize this one as, I am how people see me. I am how I'm seen. If I can throw the post out there that gets 52 likes, then I feel good about myself. If I put something out on social media and nobody reacts, I'm, I'm going crazy. My identity is wrapped up in how I'm seen. My identity is often wrapped up in my wealth. I am what I have. If I have these things, I'm a somebody. It speaks of status. If I don't have them, I'm not only just discouraged, I come apart at the seams because my identity is wrapped up in that. I am uh, who I'm with. It's a relational identity. You know, if, if I'm successfully married as an adult or if I'm a younger person and I, or a single person, I have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, then I feel like I'm a somebody because I'm attracting people. That relationship is everything to me. And if I have nobody, if my marriage has fallen apart or if I'm single and nobody seems interested in me, then I'm always wondering, uh, I'm feeling very small. I'm a nobody because I don't have a somebody. I am who I'm with. And there are many, many others. Of course, one of the most common and dominant in our culture right now is the narrative of sexual identity and gender. Don't worry, moms and dads, this will stay PG rated. But we're kidding ourselves if ourselves and our children are not fully aware of the narratives running in our culture right now. You see, of, of all the things that could be said about such complex issues as same-sex attraction or transgenderism, and there is a lot to understand and to think about with those things. Here's one thing specifically to point out as it pertains to our discussion this morning from Philippians chapter 3. What is not new in our culture is that people experience what some mental health professionals would call gender dysphoria. They're confused about their gender or they have different feelings about their gender or they would experience something like same-sex attraction. Those things are not brand new in the human race, but I'll tell you one thing that is new. It's unique in history to our time and our generation. What's new is the way we think about those feelings that people often experience. Rather than saying, for example, a man who experiences same-sex attraction, rather than just thinking of that as something that he, for whatever set of reasons, experiences, that's just part of, of, of who he is, it's what he experiences and what he has to deal with. What we tend to assume in our culture now is not that that's just what he experiences, but that that's who he is. That's who you are. Or if I... I'm absolutely convinced, despite maybe even my best efforts to change how I feel, that I am really, though I was born biologically as a man, I really am a woman trapped inside of a man's body. What we tend to think about is not just that that's something that for whatever complex set of reasons that person experiences, we tend to assume that that's therefore who that person really is. We ground our identity in our gender and our sexual feelings. We might sum this one up as by saying, my identity is I am what I feel. I am what I feel. In these and many, many other ways, they all fall into this first category the Apostle Paul is talking about. We can ground our identity in our group or our performance, our wealth, our sexuality. But there's a gospel alternative here. And that's what the rest of this passage is about. For Christians, there is a gospel alternative. In verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, essentially, his 4.6 
in measuring up with everything that human beings would ground their identity in is totally and utterly worthless. Verse 7, he says, Whatever gain I once had, all of these things I had earned and achieved, I now count as losses so that I may have Christ. There's the contrast. I throw this stuff away so that I might have this over here. And then look what he says about his relationship with Jesus in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Surpassing worth. He's saying knowing Jesus is not just more valuable than all of this other stuff I once had. It's so much more valuable that all of this other stuff, in a moment, he's going to say, is garbage in comparison. Paul, you've slaved all your life to earn this 4.6. Hardly anybody can even do that. How in the world could you devalue that? That was everything to you. He says, yes, it once was. And now it is all a total, utter waste. I look at it the way I look at the trash in the garbage can. Just take it out and somebody put it in a truck and drive it away. I never want to see it again because I have something so much greater This was a radical change in perspective. Why? How did he undergo this radical change? The Apostle Paul met Jesus in a powerful way. Some of you know the story. It's recorded in the Bible in Acts chapter 9. He's on his way to the city of Damascus to attack Christians with his zeal that we've already seen. And Jesus Christ literally apprehends his soul. I don't know how else to put it. He has a miraculous encounter with Jesus in which, among other things, he is struck blind. Jesus literally strikes him blind so that he can no longer see, and he leaves him to wallow in his blindness for three days. Just enough time for the lesson and the message to start to sink in. You know what God was saying to Paul? You are blind, dude. And it's not just your physical eyes. They've been fine. It's something much more important, your worldview. You've been blind about your identity. All this stuff that you thought was so important and your zeal is so strong and you think it's zeal for God and you're actually making yourself the enemy of God. You are so blind you don't get it. There's a better way. And it's called the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. Your efforts mean nothing. Everything that the Apostle Paul had based his identity on up to that point was wrong and his life was a sham. And for 72 hours, he got to live as a blind man to realize how blind he had truly been. Only when he embraced the forgiveness of God by grace in Jesus Christ did he see what really matters. Only then did he see clearly and his physical sight was restored. And decades later, the Apostle Paul reflects on that experience and he writes this paragraph that we're reading this morning. And he says, everything that I had, it's rubbish, it's trash. I now see clearly. Knowing Jesus is far more valuable than all of that stuff put together. Gosh, if most people shoot for a 4.0 and I had a 4.6, to know Jesus is like, I don't, it's a a hundred, okay? I mean, it's, it's not even on the same scale. What a joke that I put so much of my identity in those things. And in verse 9, he says, the gospel really forms the basis of a new identity. He says, I've counted all of these things as rubbish or trash 
in order that I may gain Christ. And in verse 9, he says, and to be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I don't want to stand before God one day and say, I kept all the rules. I've got the 4.6 because I realize it's nothing. I want to stand before God someday and say, I am nothing except what Jesus has done for me. I bring nothing to the table. He brought everything, and it's only by his grace that I stand before you now. He says, that is where it's at. That is where it's at. That is my identity. And he repeats it. It's, uh, again, in verse 9, the righteousness that doesn't come from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. He says, again, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, trusting in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross as a sacrifice in my place. Our gospel identity is formed by acknowledging that I am a sinner. There's no amount of achievement I can do that will change that. I am guilty in earning just judgment before a holy and righteous God. That's who I am, apart from the grace of God. The very best I can manage is nowhere near good enough for God because in my heart I'm bent to rely on myself and serve myself, not God. I deserve God's judgment. That's the beginning of a gospel identity. Fortunately, it's not the end. The Son of God came to earth as the man, Jesus, and when he died on the cross, he did so in my place. So he took that judgment that I deserved for me. And in the process, if I bank everything on Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice right now, my sins will be forgiven. And then the perfect righteousness that Jesus himself lived he was the one who's really kept every aspect of God's law, actually gets credited to me. He takes my sin, I take his righteousness. He gets my death, I get his life. That's the divine exchange of the gospel of Jesus. And the apostle Paul says, that's the righteousness I want to be seen to have. Not my own, the righteousness that came from Jesus, because only his righteousness is perfect. And in his grace, he gives it to me. And finally, that leads me to a whole new identity. I'm forgiven, yes, but I don't just stand before God as a creature, a servant whose crimes have been forgiven. I now stand before God as a father. Because my sins have been expunged by the, the sacrifice of Jesus, God adopts me into his family as a son and as a daughter. He is my father. I am a child of God, deeply loved by the one by whom and for whom I was made. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul writes that if you're in Christ, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, the context is if you're in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Friends, do you see how this is all about our identity? This is all about our identity. He's saying your ethnic background, Jewish, non-Jewish, doesn't matter anymore. Your socioeconomic status doesn't matter anymore. Your gender is male or female. That's not the most important thing that can be said about you anymore. The most important thing that can be said about you is that you belong to Christ along with every other Christian. That is the core of our identity. Of course, we still have an ethnic background, and that's good. We have a socioeconomic status. We have a gender. Those things are all good, but they are no longer the basis of who we are. We are now a family of God united by his adoption of us, made possible because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in our place. All the old bases for our identity are blown away by the gospel. Friends, as we approach a new school year, 
and the milestone of our 30th anniversary as a church. We want to let God remind us who he's called us to be and what he's put us here to do. We serve him in the midst of a society where all around us people are trying to drop the anchor of their identity in a hundred different places of shifting sand. We seek to anchor our identity in the groups we belong to, who I'm from. We seek to anchor our identity in our performance, and we accomplish, I am what I've done. We seek to anchor our identity in how I feel about my sexuality, I am how I feel, many, many other places. And let's be honest, let's be honest. This isn't just people out there who do this. Every one of us feels the pull of anchoring our identity in one or more of these places. The Bible teaches us that the gospel offers a better alternative. Just as as Jesus blew the apostle Paul's old identity clean out of the water, and the guy was never the same, he never recovered, he wants to do the same thing for you, and he wants to do the same thing for me. He wants to replace the shaky foundations of our identity with a solid one. I am what Jesus has done in me and for me. That's the most important thing that can be said about me. And if it's the most important thing that can be said about you, then we have a connection like none other. And that's a church. As a gospel-centered people at Harvest, we've been put here to display and proclaim the gospel of Jesus to this community. And friends, we can't fully do that until we begin letting the gospel blow the shaky foundations of our identity away and replace it with a gospel-centered identity. As individuals and as a church family, anchoring who we are and what Jesus has done in us and for us. Would you pray with me to that end? Father, we've seen your word. We've heard what you've taught. We want to embrace the identity that you've really given us. And every one of us, I I believe, if we're honest, though we may have been Christians for quite some time even, can recognize that we anchor our identity in lots of places other than who you are and what you've done for us and in us. And we pray, Father God, that the gospel as a church would become more real to us, that we ourselves would repudiate our false identities Rather than immediately pointing out other people's false identities, God, help us to see our own and to anchor who we are in the gospel, not where we've come from or what we can do and perform. And I pray that the fact that we are a gospel people whose identity is rooted in who you are and what you've done would be the basis upon which you make your name great in us and through us in this community. We pray these things in your son's name.